Uh, let's let's jump in here. We are actually starting a new series today. This is something that we we normally do is we preach through uh, an entire book of the Bible, and uh, so we're we're going uh, Old Testament, uh, which I am looking forward to. I know we we spent a lot of time uh, in the book of Exodus going through that, and and Nehemiah. It might be a, a book that uh, if you even if you grew up in the church, you might actually not be all that familiar with, and. And Nehemiah, he's called a minor prophet uh, just because uh, there, there's major prophets, there's minor prophets in the Bible. The major prophets simply just wrote more, and that's why they're major prophets. And the minor prophets doesn't mean they're any less significant. They just didn't sit down and write as much. Um, and so Nehemiah, though, is in a very unique position, and he has 10 different prayers that he gives uh, throughout his book and, and the circumstances behind it and, and just want to be able to look at the, uh, the cry of the soul of Nehemiah. And so we're going to jump, uh, jump right into this. So the first one is just going to be a prayer of remembrance, and this is chapter 1 in, in Nehemiah. Um, have you ever been intimidated by somebody? And I mean that by, that could go in any, any direction. I know that. But um, uh, I remember when I was in junior high, uh, again, I've, I've been the same height since I was in sixth grade, which was awesome when I was playing basketball. And if you remember Dikembe Mutombo, he was uh, a basketball player for the, was it the Sixers or the Hawks? Was he? Do you remember Hawks? Uh, but he had this thing where he would block. He was just a phenomenal uh, shot blocker in basketball, and and he would just wave his finger at people when he would do that. And so I started doing that in junior high because I would just I was averaging like 13 shot blocks a game. It was stupid, um, and and so I would just intimidate people just for how lanky I was. Um, it had nothing to do with skill. I was just bigger than everybody. But that's one thing. That's one way of intimidation. Another way of intimidation is is the idea of it could be a boss. It could be a CEO. I remember uh, my wife worked at a, at a firm downtown, an auditing firm, and even just meeting their uh, partners at the firm, like, I don't even, like, my job's not in jeopardy here, but there's something about that positional difference that is just kind of intimidating, or maybe meeting a, uh, a celebrity of some sorts, and it's just, you just, man, they're just, they're just another human being, but there's just something that's a little weird, and, and that's exactly what's going to happen to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to approach a king and he's going to be a little intimidated, as you can, you can imagine. So before we jump into the text, uh, I want to give a little bit of historical context leading up to Nehemiah. And, and, and this is uh, really important, I think, just giving us a better lens and idea of, of who Nehemiah is and the situation that's, that's surrounding him. Uh, and so just looking at the, the first portion of this passage is uh, in Nehemiah 1, 1, it says, uh, In the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in a citadel of Susa. So there's a lot going on here, and different commentaries will disagree on what does it mean with the 20th year. So we're not going to try to nitpick on what time is it, what year is it, what's going on. We're not going to really uh, dig into that. But he is in uh, what was Persia. And so he is uh, really second in command. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But he had a position of, of authority and power in the Persian Empire. And so you, you, it's, it was basically most of the known world. And so historically what's happening here is this used to be the Babylonian Empire uh, under, under King Nebuchadnezzar, and then the Persians come in, and this is all in the history books, not just, not just the Bible. Um, and so the, the, the Persians come in, and they take over this empire, and, 
And, uh, and so you can see it goes almost all the way up to, up to Greece. They had a lot of civil war and a lot of wars with the Athenians and the Spartans. And, and then you have going down south there, you have where Israel is right on that peninsula there by Arabia and then Egypt. And Egypt was also rebelling against Persia. And so Israel was kind of this buffer state if you will. And so uh, how the Persians interacted with the Israelites was, was very important uh, to make sure that they kept the peace there. And so that's what's going on. Ezra, ne- Nehemiah is contemporary with Ezra. Uh, that's another book that's written in the Bible, another minor prophet. As you're going through the Bible, it's Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. Uh, Esther is also a contemporary. They all three would have been alive at the same time, dealing with the same kings. And so uh, most likely, uh, Esther, uh, Queen Esther, is married to Artaxerxes, uh, who we're going to be looking at, this king that Nehemiah is in power and position with, and Esther as well as he is back in Israel and Jerusalem. And so there's a lot of overlap between these three books um, when we look at this. So just looking at these kings, again, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, these dates will be on the test at the end of the sermon, so uh, pay attention. Uh, just kidding. It, I, I, we don't do that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, so then, but then you have the Persian king and then Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus, is, it's, it's another awesome story to read in the Bible. But, but Cyrus, this Persian king um, who actually allows the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. They've been scattered all over that whole entire region of that was, was Persia. And he's going to allow them to go back to their land um, just to keep peace. Uh, God uses him in that way to allow his people to go back to Israel. And then you have uh, the Persian king Darius the Great. Notice how all of them are called the Great. Uh, Persian king Xerxes the First, the Great. Persian king Artaxerxes the First, the Great. So uh, Esther was either married to Xerxes or Artaxerxes. It's not incredibly clear, but either way, they would have been uh, in, in connection, and, and she might have been an old woman at that point, but either way, uh, they would have been around so who is Nehemiah? Well, what we learned from this passage in chapter one, it ends the chapter with saying, I was a cupbearer to the king. And I think uh, when I initially read it, I thought, well, that, how is that a position of, of power? How is that authority? How is that anything? Uh, he simply uh, ate all the king's food to make sure that the king wouldn't die, right? And that's in my mind what it, what it was, but it's so much more than that. Um, in the sense of their influence and just being able to, to speak, they're, they're obviously always with the king. That anytime something's offered or whatever, he's, Nehemiah was right there by his side. And I kind of think of all these, uh, you know, TV shows or movies or, or anything where like the, you know, the president's there and he's always got his bodyguard. Right? He's not just the bodyguard, right? It's always like, hey, Jim, what would you do in this situation? Like, you're the president, whatever, right? But they're, they're always there and they, and they hear conversations behind closed doors that nobody else is, is privy to. And that's that's Nehemiah. And so he ha- is in this position of power and influence that he has a good relationship and even friendship with the king, as we're going to see. And so spoiler alert, next week, uh, he's going to come into the king's presence. And the king's just going to go, why are you so sad today? Right? I mean, even just his countenance, the king is able to, to notice that. So that's who Nehemiah was. We're going to get some uh, news from back home. So we see this... Hanani, one of my brothers, and this most likely is actually a literal uh, brother, blood brother uh, of, of Nehemiah. doesn't really matter, but it's just you know, most likely what the, that's what the, the Hebrew is uh, worded. Came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. So this dispersion, this exile all over the Persian uh, land, they had survived. They weren't killed. They, they survived. And so they're called the remnant 
And then uh, he says also and also about Jerusalem. So again, Cyrus lets them come back into Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that they're technically not in exile if they're in the promised land. And yet something's just not right still. That they can read all these promises in the Old Testament and, and all these things that are going to be true of, from King David and from Solomon and, and all these, these covenants that God makes with his people that we're going to be in this land and we're going to dwell in this land forever. And then Cyrus says, okay, go back to the land. And they're going, what's going on? We still feel like we're in exile. Why is that? Even though we're in the town, even though we're in Jerusalem. Well, there's a, a, an interesting, so when he goes back on here to say, he says, they said to me, so this is the news that he receives, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace, right? They're, they're, they're back from exile, except they're in great trouble and disgrace. Why? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So again, a little context, if we go back to Ezra, just four years prior to this, there's a letter that is written from uh, Artaxerxes' governors or, or people that were just in charge of the area around Jerusalem, and they write this letter. They write this letter back to Artaxerxes, and it says this, to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the providence beyond, beyond the river, send greetings, and now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. That, that part's okay. They were allowed to do that. But it says now they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city, Jerusalem. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Okay, so he's saying, hey, they, they build these walls. They're gonna bunker down and, and they're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're gonna rebel just like everybody else is. Now, because we eat of the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, therefore, we send and inform the king in order that such may be made in the book of records of your fathers. You will find in the book of records, right? So, so go back, look, read this book. You'll read about how wicked of a people this is. You will find in the book of records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession of the province beyond the river, right? You're, you're going to cut off Israel and you're going to cut off Egypt if this city is rebuilt. So Artaxerxes, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but his reply back to Ezra and back to uh, the leaders there is, yeah, you're right. Don't let them build it. Let's tear it down again. Burn, burn, the, burn the gates, right? We're not going to let them finish their walls. And so when we talk about this intimidation factor between, from Nehemiah, again, spoiler alert, he's about to go back to this same king, and he's going to say, we need to rebuild these walls. Uh, that, that, that would be terrifying, as you can imagine, going to a king who could easily just say, off with your head, get out of my sight. No, your city will never be rebuilt. And matter of fact, I'm going to just kill everybody and put this rebellion down. He doesn't do that. So what is Nehemiah's first response when he uh, first hears of this news? He hears of this news. The walls are, are, are burnt down or the, the gates are burnt. The walls are torn down. His first response is this. When I heard these things, 
I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I just want to take a pause right here and just think when we're going through some kind of trial, some kind of difficult circumstance, is this our first response? Is it my first response? Because I don't think it is. My first response usually isn't, I'm going to bow down and I'm going to pray to the God of heaven. I'm going to, I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast and I'm going to mourn. Usually for me, what can I do to fix it? I, I got this, right? There's, there's got to be something I can do. I can work on this that way. There's some kind of relationship that's broken, and so I got to intercede with that kind of thing instead of actually just pray. We want to fix it. We want to send these emails. We want to, uh, maybe we get angry uh, with certain difficulties that arise, and we get mad either at God or our circumstances. Maybe we flee from it. I mean, we don't like conflict so much, and we, and, and we hate it. It makes us so uncomfortable, and, and we just we don't like broken relationships. So we'll just say, I'm just never going to talk to that person again. That's easier for me than to actually mourn and fast and pray. So that's his first response. So then what is Nehemiah's actual prayer that we read in this first chapter? Well, first I want to point out who he's praying to. He starts off with, by saying, Lord... Uh, again, when it's all caps, when we read it in our, in our English translations, when Lord is in all caps, it's his Hebrew name, Yahweh. So Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. In other words, think about the context here. He's saying Yahweh, the great. And then he says, give me, give your servant success today by granting me, by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man is Artaxerxes the Great. And Nehemiah knows, I don't need to be intimidated by Artaxerxes the Great. He's just a man. What I can do is I can approach, I can approach Yahweh the Great and awesome God. We can boldly, boldly go and enter the throne of grace and approach Yahweh the great, that we don't have to worry about intimidation. That shouldn't be our first response. It shouldn't be fear. It shouldn't be anger. It should be God. And he says, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We could spend a lot of time talking about this covenant of love and what is this. And, and he's going to go on to explain what this covenant is. But it was pretty straightforward. That if Israel just obeyed the commands and obeyed the covenant of, his, of this love, right? Those who love him and keep his commandments. Unfortunately, they don't keep the commandments. So what does he pray for? He says this. He says, God, Yahweh, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant who's praying before you day and night for your servants for the people of Israel. I'm praying on their behalf. And then his first response is, I confess the sins. Again, I don't think that's my first response. When something comes into my life to, to, to flee, to get mad, to get angry, to, to try to fix it, instead fall on my knees and just confess that I'm a sinner and I am in need of my Father's love over me. And that is exactly what he does. He confesses, but it's different under this old covenant, which we're gonna, I'm going to mention here. So he says, I confess the sins of the Israelites. We didn't obey you. 
We didn't obey this covenant of love. We, we left it. He says, including myself and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. And then he's going he's gonna to say, remember? Don't, don't you remember these old covenants? Just remember the instruction that you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are faithful, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Now this is the old covenant under the old covenant that God makes with his people, he says, if you obey, you will be in my good graces. If you disobey, I will scatter you among the nations. But that is no longer the case under the covenant that we have been ushered in on the new covenant that is Jesus Christ, that is his body and his blood, which we will get to partake of this morning. This new covenant that he comes into and says, you're going to be part of this. And all of that punishment, instead of scattering you among the nations, I'm going to take that punishment and I'm going to put it on Jesus on behalf of your sins. And that you can be completely forgiven. And so we can make this kind of a statement. That under the new covenant in Christ, my sins are paid in full. They're paid for, they're done. We've talked about this on, on a theological level of what happens on the cross, of, of the forgiveness of our sin, the wrath being poured out on God. The, the theological phrase of expiation of my sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. So therefore, when we look at our lives, my difficult circumstances or sufferings are not a punishment for my sins. They're simply a result of sin. We have to remember that we have, and we're going to get proof here in the New Testament under this new covenant, what is it like? But that as I'm, I'm in there and I'm going through a difficult, unbelievably hard circumstance, to be able to look at that and say, Jesus paid for my sins. Therefore, this can't be God the Father saying, you messed up. Boom! I'm going to punish you. Now there's a difference here between Punishment, and then as a result of sin. This could be two different things. This could be as a, uh, simply the fact that we live in a fallen, broken, messed up world as a result of the fall all the way back in Genesis chapter three. Sin enters the world and everything breaks. That there was once harmony between God and creation and God and mankind and mankind and mankind. And that's broken. And so I might get sick. Somebody else might get sick. And that's simply a result of sin but not their own sin. We live in a broken world, but then there are also consequences of my sins. That I might do something, if I have an affair, it's gonna destroy my family. All right, that's not God. Why are you putting me through this trial? No, I, I did that. I haven't done that. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> Hebrews, though, says this. He says, the author of Hebrews says, endure hardships as discipline. Just, just think about that. Have you ever gone through a, a hardship, gone through a, some kind of trial, or as the apostle Paul calls a thorn in the flesh? Have you ever had to go through something where you have gotten on your knees and begged and begged and pleaded God to remove it and to endure hardship? But he says, as discipline, not as punishment, not as judgment, how different it would be to go through some kind of hardship thinking this is discipline versus this is punishment. Because if it's punishment, there's no hope. There's discipline, 
God simply wants me to be more like Christ, as he's going to explain. God is treating you as his children. That as we discipline, right, there's all these different words. I'm not going to get into this. I'm not going to get all interesting here, right? But when it talks about the, the rod of correction, right, it's not some rod to beat people with. This is simply a rod as a shepherd would use to keep his sheep in line, to, to guide and to, to direct them back into where they should be. He says, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone else undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, All right? So if you're sitting here and you're going, man, I, like I'm good, right? We just went through First Peter and it was just suffer, suffer, suffer. As a matter of fact, if you are a Christian, you will suffer. And it's exactly what's happening. If you are a believer, there's something, some sin that's gonna be pointed out. There's something in your life where God is gonna correct you. He's gonna discipline you and bring you back into the fold. And if that never happens, you say, you might not be legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them for that. How much more should we submit to the Father of the spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our own good in order that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And then he goes and he gives this example, if you will. He says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees, make level paths for your feet so that the, you, so that they, uh, excuse me, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather heal. What he's saying here in the language here of endure hardships. In other words, that could be translated remain under. I don't know if you've ever had some big heavy weight on you or anything like that, but you're being crushed by some weight. And what he's saying is remain under that weight. Don't be in such a hurry to get out from that trial. Don't be in such a, a, a rush to get out of what God is trying to teach you. He does this explicitly in, in, in Mark chapter 8. And I know I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. But the disciples are, are crossing the sea, the disciples of Jesus. They're, Jesus says, hey, I want you to get in that boat. I want you to cross the sea. I need some alone time. I'm going to walk on the beach. I'll meet you around on the other side when, when, when I get there. All right, so the disciples get in the boat, and this huge storm comes. And they're screaming and weeping and wailing and all these different things. Jesus is walking on the shore. If he wanted to say, peace be still, he would have said, peace be still. And I think when we're in the boat, when we're in this difficult circumstance, we are so quick to pray, God, stop the storm, rather than, God, what can I learn from this storm? I need to remain in the boat. I need to remain under and endure this hardship of under this. Why? Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. I'm going to get stronger by remaining under this thing, right? If I try to, if I try to get out... I hurt myself. He says, make level paths for your feet, right? Make sure that you have a strong foundation so that the lame or dislocated may not become disabled, but rather healed. Because when we try to get out, that's when dislocation happens. That's when dis, dis, disabled happens because I'm trying to get out of a lesson that God is trying to teach me and knowing that this is simply discipline and this is happening because he loves me, not because he's punishing me. But we got to be able to differentiate, is this a consequence of my sin, a consequence of my own actions, 
Or is this a gospel issue that I need to simply look to Jesus? And again, finally, look at how he prays. He says, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You, you will come back. Then are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength. This is now uh, Nehemiah, right? Praying to Yahweh. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand, right? He's saying, God, you, you've already promised this. You've already done this. You, you got us out of slavery in Egypt for four, after 400 years and you brought us into this land and you made us a great people, but we've been kicked out of that land. So remember, remember whom you redeemed by your great strength and by your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight and revering your name. It's his prayer, Father, I want you to remember our hardships. I want you to remember who you, who you said that you were gonna be to us, and we wanna come back to you. We understand in some way, shape, or form, we're being disciplined. We're being, in some way, punished, Israel is, because they didn't obey, and now he's saying, God, remember your promises. God has, is batting a thousand when it comes to keeping his promises, that we can look at hundreds and thousands of prophecies in the Old Testament that, that came true. And when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And how many times do we forget those promises? That someday, in Revelation chapter 21, he's going to make things new. He's going to right all the wrongs. And maybe sometimes we need to remember that, to remember that Jesus Christ, the Father, knows what it's like to suffer, that he's just not out to get us, but he loves us and he wants to teach us and correct us and discipline us so that we would become more like Jesus, that he does it out of love. And then finally, he is gonna end it with, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Give me, give Nehemiah your servant success as I go in front of this intimidating man and ask for the impossible. Give us success. So in application, as far as gospel application is concerned, do you feel like you are seeing difficult situations as discipline or punishment? Because again, this is two, two incredibly different things. To be punished for my sin and to be disciplined and corrected for my sin is a whole nother, whole nother thing. And I can't imagine going through some kind of, well, I can. And I, and I remember, and I'll just briefly, I'll tell the story. I remember when my, my father was first diagnosed with cancer, I was 14, I had my football pads on, um, just came from football practice, went up to the hospital, uh, and I heard uh, dad's got cancer. And my first response was I went to the bathroom and I wept to confess my sins because my dad had cancer because of my sin. That's what it looks like to see a difficult circumstance as punishment versus I don't understand this. There's something here for me to learn. There's something for me to learn to become more like Christ, to be able to suffer like Christ on justice. What can we learn? And it's not easy, but to remain under that difficult circumstance. And then finally, when you pray, do you remember the promises of God and who he says he is? Do you believe that God the Father lovingly has your best interest in mind? That when I discipline my child, I don't do it because I'm some kind of sadistic individual that likes to see my kid cry because he doesn't get his way. 
a discipline, and it's difficult at the time, even as a father. But do we remember the promises? God, you, you, you said this. I know you remember, but maybe, maybe I need to remember this. This is who you are. And there are times, as we went through 1 Peter, that a difficult circumstance might come in our lives, and it might never, ever go away. It might be for our entire lifetime, and yet, for all of eternity, it will have made us more like Jesus. We're going to enter into a time of communion like we do every week, and and as we do this, um, all I would ask is that you would be a follower of Jesus. You don't need to be a member of, of this church or any church or anything like that, but if you are a follower of Jesus, if you say, yes, I love Jesus, uh, I want to obey his commandments, I, I believe in who he is as the Son of God and this new covenant that is his body and his blood to be able to take this, this sacrificial meal that he instituted thousands of years ago and say, no longer are we going to look to a lamb and a lamb's blood to forgive me of our sin, to forgive us of our sins, you are going to partake of my body and my blood that will actually take away the sins of the world. And so we take the bread, which represents his body that was broken for us. We take the juice, which represents his blood that was shed for us, that covers our sin as he was being punished by the wrath of God so that we don't have to. There's a gluten-free option uh, on your right side if that is a dietary need. As we partake of these elements, as we eat the bread as we drink the juice. The first song that we're going to be singing is a song written by um, uh, Martin Luther back in the 1500s. And it's from Psalm 130. It's just a beautiful, poetic uh, rendition of Psalm 130. And the last phrase, and we're going to sing it multiple times, it says, Our shepherd, good and true is he who has at last his Israel freed. When Luther penned those words in the 1500s, he's not thinking ethnic Israel. He's thinking Israel. He's thinking God's people, the actual remnant that have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, to be set free by his blood and by his body and by his works and what he accomplished on the cross, not what we can do to try to obey the rules and religions that as his people were in exile, even though they were still in the city, saying, God, there's, there's got to be something more. This can't be the completion of all these promises to, to be in this broken down city. And God has always said, no, that's not it. I'm going to send a Messiah. And so now we get to look forward to that and we get to sing about the Messiah who has at last his Israel freed from all their sin and sorrows. Will you bow and pray with me as we partake of these elements, as we sing, as we do our own confession and remembrance in our own prayers. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the time that we've had together. I thank you for this, this book of Nehemiah, this text that was, that was written over 2,500 years ago. Now we can look at the circumstances surrounding the the, the prophet Nehemiah, this cupbearer to the king, and yet look at his words and say, Yahweh the great, give me strength as I talk to this man. God, would that be our heart? Would we replace this man with our difficult circumstances? To be able to look at our own own heart and maybe the own uh, discipline and correction that's going on in our life? But God, at the same time, that we would confess, that we would confess our sins the same way that Nehemiah did. And so God, I pray now as we partake of these elements that we would remember 
we'd remember the new covenant, which is in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, as we look to him, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Father, remember your promises to us, to your people, and thank you that you have sent your Messiah to at last let Israel be free and let us be free from our sins and the punishment thereof because of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.